0: John McManus joins the show again today. He joined School of War early in the podcast's life to discuss his ongoing multi-volume history of the US Army's war in the Pacific in World War II. And he's now finished that project and is back to discuss. It's remarkable that something on the scale of his subject, the Army bore the brunt of the fighting in the Pacific, fighting in massive campaigns in places like the Philippines that were essentially wars unto themselves. And yet compared to the Navy, and much smaller Marine Corps, gets relatively little attention for it. That's a problem, McManus argues, kind of intriguingly in my view. The Army's war, he says, points at the real Pacific War, which was much more about China and terrain closer to the main Asian coastline than it was about the smaller islands made famous by marine actions. And of course, where the Army fought in the 1940s, America may well soon find itself fighting again. Let's get into it.
1: It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate.
0: We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us
1: soon. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall
0: never surrender. For maps, videos, and images, follow us on Instagram, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Aaron B. McLean. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show today John McManus, who is professor of military history at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He is the author of numerous books and publications, most recently To the End of the Earth, which is the third of a three-volume uh, history of the U.S. Army in the Pacific in World War II, John. I want to start by congratulating you on your achievement. It really is a remarkable document that you've produced. So, thanks very much for coming on the show to talk about it.
1: Well, thanks so much, Aaron. It's it's really a
0: pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. Can I, before we get into the substance of the thing, just how how long is this? How long has this project taken you?
1: I'd say the better part of a decade or so, you know, because it it really, the majority of it in research, I guess the research and, and travel for same. And then the writing, you know, that, that took a number of years as it stretched out because these are, you know, not short volumes, as you know, and you know, that, that can take a while to produce. So I, I wanted something that would really just kind of take us on an odyssey from the beginning to the end for the US army and that maybe gives us a sense of of some of the lessons we learn and, and some of the harbingers that that or contain.
0: Yeah. And we'll we'll get into this during the course of our conversation of course, but you pointed out way back in the in the very first volume when you were writing about December 41 and everything that was to come that you know the American military history of the of the rest of the 20th century is in many ways an Asian military history and a Pacific military history. And so, you know what what we can learn from those warriors in the early forties clarifies what's to come. And then, of course, we're all sitting here in twenty twenty four. By the way, I should point out I, I realized as we were sitting down to record, it is January the ninth. Which, if I'm not mis- is it Estay is that the is that the the code name for the invasion of Luzon? So this Got is it. the anniversary of one of the great amphibious operations of all time, which you talk about in your book, the invasion of the Philippines and of of, of Luzon in particular. But that that military history not only clarifies the Cold War, but sitting here in 2024, we're all anticipating, you know, that this that we, there is a strong possibility of another war in the Western Pacific that everyone is talking about, and so we might we might pull some lessons you suggest having having completed the project. You uh, you stand by that assertion?
1: Oh, I absolutely do. I, I think I just think there's so many lessons to be learned. I mean, for one thing, the the nature and ferocity of the combat, the sort of give no quarter, ask no quarter, take no quarter kind of approach uh, that you see in the war between the U.S. and Japan is really more typical ever since, that our enemies really kind of fight that way. And and at the same time, the the U.S. then has to kind of struggle with its own concepts of the rules of war. You know, I think that that certainly is in play, but also just the, the relevance of amphibious operations and ground forces in general, that even though, you know, naval power and air power were, of course, crucially important, in World War II and a major reason for Allied victory, in the end, I think what, what, is, what comes through, I hope, in these volumes, maybe even shockingly so, is just how much of the fighting was done on the ground. And, and I just don't know that that would change in the future. You know, That's been sort of the pattern of history. Things can change, of course, but I think maybe the, the, what happens with the Army in World War II can give us a sense that this could be quite possible in the future, unfortunately.
0: Well, let's let's come back to this. I want to sort of revisit this this issue of of lessons learned at the end. But for now, let's let's go back in time to the period that you're writing about. And, and and in a minute, we'll get to 1945 and the actual period that this volume covers. But even before that, what how did the U.S. Army change from Pearl Harbor, you know, December 41 through to the final phase of the war against Japan in 1945? Talk talk a bit about what the army was like when the war started. Yeah. And how it ended the war.
1: Yeah, when the war starts, the army is kind of just starting to expand beyond almost something of a glorified constabulary force. in a, in a way, this this kind of provincial, very, very kind of intimate military force that in 1939 was actually physically smaller than Romania's army. You know, so obviously the officer corps was small. Many of the folks knew one another, but it was interesting that we had this professional corps that is going to be so crucial to, to you know expanding the army and winning the war that they had enough professionalism, enough professionals to, to, to make that happen but not so much that the, that the army was riven by careerism kind of thing So it ends up of course as a as a massive drafty army of citizen soldiers for the most part in which probably about you know two-thirds were draftees. the army grows to about 8 million and in, in terms of what happens with the Pacific Asia, you know, this is, you know, there's 1.8 million army ground soldiers who serve in the war against Japan. And that's the third largest we ever sent overseas. So when Pearl Harbor happens, you're just seeing the beginning of that kind of growth because we were already mobilizing before we got in the war. And of course, afterwards is when you see the, the largest growth. And so the army ends the war as this incredibly sophisticated, diverse military machine that is capable of doing all these things. That, uh, many of which don't have a thing to do with combat in, in the sense of, you know, seeing danger. But I mean, the, the Army, it's a massive engineering problem that they're, they're dealing with, especially the building of airfields, the de- dealing with the, the conditions, creating infrastructure. The transportation side of the house is just so crucial to, to all of this. The medical side, the, the Army's medical organization and capability and appar- apparatus by the end of the war is, I would argue, you know, had never been exceeded in history up to that point. It's really incredible. But also the the civil affairs side of it. I mean, we tend to think of the, the Pacific War as being fought on these empty islands. And sometimes that's true, but really more often it's not. And especially the Philippines, you know, is is a completely different kind of animal in the sense that you are liberating a friendly country quite similar to Europe. And this then entails a lot of different civil affairs issues. So those are just a few examples of this kind of larger whole of a very diverse army with all these different MOSs that's doing a lot of things. And oh, by the way, fighting this, this existential kind of peer-to-peer war against the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy, which also has ground forces. And of course, we all know about the ferocity of that. So, so I think that, that to me is just a fascinating transition you know, what that means for our, for our country and, you know, and, and who's part of this and why, and who directs it. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing human story. I think.
0: How did the professionals and the draftees, this is a a big and in some ways kind of impossible question, but how did, how did they interact? How did, how did the professionals sort of come to terms with the new reality that was dawning for their organization and make this organization effective, even as everything must seem to have been changing and in some ways for the worse before their eyes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's very frustrating for the professionals. And I, and by that, I especially I allude to the the officer corps. I mean, the NCO corps is not very big, and it's going to have to be created to some extent, created in combat quite often, or under the, 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 the stress of working in an Army Service Force side of the house in a port company or something like that. I think that there's frustration with having to train these guys up and get them to do things the Army way. You know, but I also think that when the the draftees come in, the citizen soldiers, and many of them are volunteers, actually, but they're citizen soldiers serving for the duration, I mean, they bring their own kind of innovation to things, too, of saying, you know, I never intended to be a soldier, but maybe I want to be a business guy, but I have some ideas about how we can do things better, about how our finance office can work better, or, or how our rifle squad, or whatever it happens to be, and I do think that there's a, a really good kind of meeting of the minds in terms of talent that, that you see in the world. Now, there's social tensions, to be sure. You know, there, there absolutely are between those who are there for a career and those who are not. But the, that first group is pretty small. And so you have a lot of people who have found out a lot of things about themselves in terms of being good leaders being good thinkers and planners, being courageous or, you know, or otherwise, you know, and, and it's everything in between. It's all these human foibles. So in terms of actual tangible operations, the challenge, I think, for many of the senior officers and, and really one of the, the main people I cover is Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, who I think is the best example of a professional who's, who's really doing great things with this human material that, that you're getting in a citizen army biggest biggest challenge is training up actual divisions that you can send in and be ready for combat. And of course, you're, you're never completely ready, but I think overall, when we look at the whole record, I think they do pretty well. And I, so I think that the, the Eichelburgers of the world, in spite of the challenges that they had, you know, end up coming off pretty well. The, the, I think that they did a pretty solid job.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder, just in the spirit of thinking, projecting this all forward, if we do find ourselves in another war that becomes protracted, which is something that you know we've had a number of conversations on the show about an idea we need to start getting used to i do wonder you 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 know in in the current military establishment as you know there's a training establishment that then supplies basically trained but not only basically trained actually some fairly sophisticated level of skills training in some cases individuals to units and then those units do their own training but the base level at which they're beginning is much higher as a consequence of the existence of this training establishment and i wonder you know, what, what it looks like to find ourselves in a world where all of a sudden the number of people we have to process through is so high that we look to units themselves to get themselves ready, starting from a much lower bar than we're currently used to operating, which I guess is an experience that the army had to deal with in World War II, or was there, was there, was there still the sort of training establishment and then operating unit breakdown?
1: Oh, that's the interesting thing is before the war, like as of 1939, you probably would have received your basic training in whatever unit you were assigned to. And of course- Oh, interesting. So it's almost the other way. Okay, got it. Yeah, so so in the course of the war, of course, and even before, then they're going to create, like you mentioned there, in that training establishment, which is, say, you know, you're going to go to Camp Roberts or Fort Leonard Wood or, you know, Jack, Fort Jackson, wherever to do your basic training. And then, you know, for some sort of advanced training or you're assigned to a unit, you know, whatever it would be. You know, so we have that that kind of major training infrastructure now that is kind of a legacy of World War Two, because they, they had realized we need uniformity in training. We need everybody, no matter their MOS, to have these basic kind of soldier skills. Ideally, it should be 14 weeks of basic infantry training. Now, it isn't always that way, but, but when you're talking about 8 million plus people, but that's largely the pattern, I suppose. And so I think World War II is interesting to look at because you, you do see us transition from that kind of old army where you, you it was really quite intimate in a way. You went to a unit and you were trained up the way that unit saw things, which may or may not be good. Versus this sort of larger kind of centrally controlled, you know, let's train them up the same way sort of army that I think,
0: you know, tends to work pretty well. That's really interesting. So you, you, you cover a few sort of major issues or, or sort of ongoing events or operations in the book. And you start with MacArthur and the liberation of Luzon and the Philippines more broadly. And it makes sense for it. And then there's China, then there's Okinawa, and then obviously the preparation for, for Japan itself. Let's we'll start with MacArthur with another big picture question. MacArthur, you 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 sort of open with him continuing to be upset about the, uh, excuse me, the the Europe first policy mm-hmm. of the allies. And that's another issue that has sort of echoes to today, sort of obvious, obvious echoes and obvious intersections with politics and foreign policy. Say more about that. What, what does that mean yeah. that, that maybe just remind people what Europe first was and then how did it, how did MacArthur perceive it as affecting his interests and American interests? And and then what's your own assessment?
1: Yeah, so the Europe first or Germany first policy is something that the British and the Americans agree on even before U.S. entry into the war. And the thinking behind that was sort of twofold, that, that Germany was the most dangerous enemy and thus needed to be dealt with first. And there was a lot to recommend that, of course. And, you know, of course, this is happening in the context of the German invasion of the Soviet Union, which if the Germans succeed there, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for the Western Allies to get back on the European continent. But the, the, the second aspect of it is that the assumption, and this is really what rankled MacArthur, that America's geostrategic interests and future really were in Europe. And that what, that's what could be a little bit more debatable. MacArthur, granted, he's a giant ego and he's the kind of person who thinks that any room he's in has to be the most important room, right? I mean, that's, that's MacArthur. But as he saw it, it made no sense at the beginning of the war when, you know, this American and Filipino garrison in the Philippines is in crisis. It made no sense for us to be sending resources to the Soviet Union instead of our own people in, in that context. And, and as he saw it, and I think this is, this is one insight that he had that, that I think he deserves some credit for. As he saw it, America's greatest geopolitical future would be in Asia and the Pacific. And I think subsequent history has, has proven that to an extent. But I think it was way too dismissive of Europe's importance, too, then and, you know, and I think as we've seen now, I mean, you know, you'd be foolish to argue Europe's not important. Of course it is. And the NATO alliance and all that. MacArthur didn't quite get that. So the way this is shaped up by January 45, when he's invading Luzon is that for the whole war up to that point, he's been basically complaining that he hasn't gotten enough resources and priority and all that. And he's convinced that people in D.C. at high levels are kind of sabotaging him deliberately and all this. He's very paranoid. And, and, and I, you know, the way I write about this, I find it almost embarrassing that he's still complaining about this in January of 45 because the army he controls there is massive. And outside of Eisenhower's armies in Northern Europe, it's the largest concentration of American military force on the planet. And in fact, the invasion of Luzon involves more U.S. Uh, amphibious divisions than, than we contribute to the invasion of Normandy. So, you know, and then he's going to have, you know, 14 plus divisions as a follow-on force. I mean, the the operations of the Philippines are enormous, probably second only to, to Normandy, you know, and maybe the Battle of the Bulge or whatever, but, it, you know, it's pretty, pretty high speed kind of stuff. And yet he's still kind of complaining that he's not <laughs> getting the priority, which is a very MacArthur thing, I guess.
0: Yeah. And there, of course, MacArthur is a figure of the right. And there, there is this political dimension to it that, that A, does map onto today in ways that we can get into. But B, obviously continues through the 40s and sort of debates within the Republican Party in the 40s as, as China falls to the communists and Korea looms. This notion that there is something about Roosevelt and then Truman that is dismissive of the pacific and that that is somehow a scandal is is a live issue on there in fact it's funny i just listeners of the show are probably wearying of my references to herman woke's war and remembrance which i've just watched the re since first time since childhood the miniseries Great. version of which is fantastic and there's a scene in it where the i forget his name but he would have been the commander of the pacific fleet on pearl harbor
1: oh husband kimmel
0: yes that that must be right and Obviously he's had a bad day and his career is, is over. And our protagonist played by Robert Mitchum walks into his office and they're chatting and the, the fleet commander is grousing He's you know, like we, we got, we got, we got caught cause we, you know, we weren't paying attention. Roosevelt was paying attention to the wrong war. And it's this sort of pathetic moment where he's obviously covering for, you know, whatever failures there were in Washington, there were obviously failures in Pearl Harbor as well and in Hawaii as well. And he's covering for it with this sort of brittle political opinion. And it sort of, it, you know, with with Herman Woke's work, it sort of fits this picture of, you know, well, nothing succeeds like success and FDR chose Europe first and it worked and Europe was important and Hitler was terrible and it's going to be defeated him. So that must have been, they must have been right. But as you point out, there are, there are elements, there are elements to the argument. There are elements to the point that deserve uh, attention. But I guess by 45, it's all it, the resources, as you point out, are, are already sort of settled out and MacArthur has what he needs. I mean, he definitely has what he needs. He doesn't think so,
1: but he does in the context of a global war. And, and yeah, as, as I try to point out in the series, the Europe first policy certainly you know, does work. And I wouldn't necessarily sit here and argue against it, but I think it needs to be looked at in a maybe a nuanced way that it also had consequences. Yeah. And I think the biggest consequence is our lack of prioritization of China which we are still paying the price for today, if you look at it as a point of view of saying, okay, let's say you have greater priority to, to giving more resources to Chiang shek more strategic priority to the China-Burma-India theater, which it was always last priority behind everything else. Um, let's say that translates to more influence for the kind of outcome you want in China. And, and I realize that may or may not be true, but I think it, the percentages are it could be. Probably what that means is the preservation of Shanghai's ex regime and what it means conversely, we know, is the triumph of the Communist Party and the establishment of the People's Republic of China, which I think we would all agree is a pretty important event and that we're still kind of paying the price for today. So even though Germany first made total sense, it was like anything, your resources, you only had so much. And so even when you were making you know, solid choices, they were going to have some negative consequences too. And, and uh, so MacArthur it, at the time is sort of the darling, ironically, of the China lobby, which he didn't necessarily care that much about China in the context. He cared about the Philippines as much as anything, of course, understandably, but also the, the Hearst newspaper empire, media empire that loved the idea of the entire war being under MacArthur's control, which MacArthur certainly wouldn't oppose that. And so, you know, they're invested in that idea. And that also means kind of pushing back against FDR's Germany first policy. So there, there were all these sort of layers to the to the political argument at the time. And yes, on the on the right of the spectrum, it tended to be a little more pro-Asia, more pro-China and certainly, you know, pro-MacArthur. Yeah.
0: well, let's, I want to come to China in just a minute, but sticking with MacArthur in the Philippines for a second. Talk, talk about the, the the rationale, the strategic rationale for liberating Luzon and then and then conducting the liberation of, of the rest of the Philippines, which follows on in the midst of the you know the compelling need to defeat Japan and how you know sort of the same structure of question, how MacArthur thought about all of that and then speak to his own personal connections to the Philippines. And then what's your assessment of of the strategy and and how it actually functioned?
1: yeah the roots of it are in the the i discussed in the previous volume of the series island infernos which covers 1944 and it it covers the the famous meeting of nimitz macarthur and fdr in oahu at or near pearl harbor in july of 44 in which they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and really what a lot of this boils down to is are we going to to invade at formosa today's taiwan are we going to go back to the Philippines? It's not always an either or, but it tends to boil down to that. And it was the Navy arguing for Operation Causeway, the invasion of Formosa, and of course MacArthur vociferously arguing for a return to the Philippines. He gets what he wants, as we know. And I think largely because even Nimitz comes around to the idea that invading Formosa would be a really tough go. And it really honestly would be the army having to carry most of the load in terms of service forces to support the massive invasion and the campaign that would follow there. And even though you did that, you were going to have serious problems on your flanks with land-based air, you know, Japanese land-based air in the Philippines attacking your shipping and and of course fleets coming from there and whatever else. So MacArthur kind of wins that layer of the argument and, you know, of course the, the sort of you know, emotional side of liberating people whom to whom we had an obligation in a way. We'd been an imperial overseer there for fifty years. We'd lost the archipelago to obviously a terrible repressive Japanese presence for many Filipinos. And MacArthur is arguing we have a moral obligation, if we are America, to do something about this. And it's a I think, I personally think I still can see the strategic decision either way because the tragedy of going back to the philippines and i hope this is what really becomes a especially apparent in this volume three where you see the terrible nature of the fighting in luzon and in manila itself of course too that in choosing to liberate them you have brought war to them destruction and all the disruption and and it's a civil war already going on like in many occupied countries the filipinos are such a huge part of their own liberation through guerrilla operations and support for the americans and they're losing their homes, they're losing their wealth, they're losing their lives. The Filipinos have an extremely high percentage of, of people who die in the war that's, that's like on par with Poland you know, and other countries that are better known for suffering in World War II. And, and a lot of this is because we've chosen to come back there and liberate, and that's the essential dilemma that's going on in France, in Belgium, in Holland, you know, friendly countries that you're liberating. So I see it as still something of a strategic toss-up and I, I'm a little reluctant to, to kind of accede to one side or the other and say it's some easy call. I don't think it was then. And I think it still is in that light, even 80 years on, in my view, at least.
0: Well, talk a little bit about, you know, beginning in January, how Luzon and then, you know, Manila and everything else, Cregador, go. Um, uh, one, re- reading your account, I was struck. I spent a fair amount of time thinking about the Korean War last year. And I, I came across the name uh, General Willoughby. And I had like a shudder went up my spine because, of course, this is the man who gets gets the Chinese intervention across the Yalu in late 1950 completely wrong. And I I confess I did not really know that he was already getting lots of things wrong. Oh, he was already well So Yeah. Talk talk about all that. Talk about intelligence expectations and how it actually goes
1: yeah on the intel side of the house willoughby is one of one of my whipping boys throughout this this series and it's not as if he's dumb or something like that i mean he's a very sharp guy and he's a self-made guy you know he's actually german comes from germany his political his political views are odious he's basically a crypto nazi on some levels but he's very dedicated to macarthur he's very sagacious on some levels but he has this and he has all this incredible intelligence apparatus at his disposal you know, obviously, we're breaking a lot of the Japanese codes. You know, he, he's got that. He's got the gorillas, the coast watchers. He's got, you know, Alamo scouts. I mean, you name it. He's got a good array of intel info. And so the reason I take him to task quite often is I think given his advantages, it's amazing how, how often he's wrong. And one place he's wrong is in Luzon in mis- in underestimating the size of the Japanese garrison. And I think one of the reasons why that happens is he he's. He's more dedicated to MacArthur than he should be and that he always wants to tell him what he wants to hear. And he he can be a bit sycophantic on that level. And I don't think you really want that in one of your key staff officers. It's Better maybe sometimes if they're a little iconoclastic and they're, they're willing to push back. Easier said than done, of course. So where that sort of bears out in the campaign is I think MacArthur doesn't always have a strong appreciation for the size and potency of some of the Japanese forces he's facing. And granted, this is always a problem in the Pacific War, not unique to MacArthur's command. Nimitz's command had the same issue too sometimes, where we're not always sure how many Japanese there are on an island or what their defenses are like or whatever. And it's sometimes a leap of faith. In the Philippines, what is really quite frustrating to MacArthur, once you know they get ashore on Luzon and they're moving towards Manila, which is the key objective, of course, is that his armies just aren't moving fast enough. And and of course, a lot of this is, is because of his 6th Army commander, Walter Kruger, who's just not wired in such a way to have a bold dash. That's not what he's about. He's a bit more of a methodical commander. He's a good commander, but he's not a risk taker. He's not a bold kind of guy. And so I think that Willoughby's intel certainly plays some role in macarthur's attitude about how rapidly his forces should move but conversely the sixth army intel tends to have a higher estimate of japanese forces more accurate and that's partially feeding then the disposition of that commander to be more methodical and cautious in a way and so you really see this kind of dynamic play out in a
0: pretty frustrating three or four weeks after the invasion itself and you know just speaking about macarthur on a personal level how does he react to how things actually turn out? Um, How does he react to the devastation and the violence, the destruction in some ways of, you know, a, a city that means so much to him? What's his, what's his personal take? It's really horrifying to MacArthur. And this is where I have a great
1: deal of empathy for him. I mean, this is hometown, Manila. That's where he had lived. He loves the Philippines and its people. It's, I think, physically painful for him to see the destruction uh, that's going to be unleashed. Manila becomes a battleground for a better part of a month, February and a little bit sliver of March 1945. And it's it's one of the largest urban battles in human history. And it's one that's going to see the deaths of some 100,000 Filipinos, residents of Manila. Many of them, of course, caught in the crossfire or dislocated or whatever, but a lot of them because of Japanese atrocities, deliberate Japanese atrocities, which are absolutely horrifying. To MacArthur, this was so troubling that... He, he starts to really get quite short with some of the correspondence attached to his headquarters and anyone who is around him who alludes to the destruction really honestly he, he's almost like trying to make it go away in his mind on some levels and and the, the other thing too this whole campaign to that point had been such a point of frustration to him because what he'd hoped for was a quick dash to grab manila before the japanese could do this now it was always a tall order, of course, but I but I take him to task a little bit for choosing the wrong commanders for their missions. He chooses Kruger and his Sixth Army for that initial invasion, and then the move to Manila, and then Eichelberger and the Eighth Army to come in later. He really should have chosen Eichelberger if he wanted the the bold commander, the fast commander. I mean, Eichelberger is arguably the best army commander in in the war, but. He is—he's certainly a guy who has a very different disposition than Kruger in terms of movement of forces and rapid and bold warfare. He's more like Patton in in that sense. he was a, a West Point classmate and a good friend, and I found that they corresponded. It's really quite fascinating. So all of this, though, vindicating for MacArthur in the sense that we're back in the archipelago and liberating people, including some POWs and civilian internees. I do think, in terms of the destruction of Manila. I would bet that MacArthur never got over that the rest of his his life because think of your own hometown and it basically becoming a field of ruins. And I mean, how are you ever really going to get past that? It, it had to be really difficult for him, I think.
0: And what is what is the Japanese de- defensive concept here? Sort of you know, theater wide, big picture. Why are they standing and fighting in places like Luzon, Okinawa is a little bit more obvious, I guess. But what just talk is are, are we just delaying and buying time and either, you know, planning to fight to the bitter end or hope that there's going to be some let up in the demand for unconditional surrender? Like what's how are they thinking uh, about the yeah. war?
1: I mean, that's the Japanese last go at this point. They've lost the initiative uh, and the control of the sea and the air by, you know, 1945, but it doesn't mean they've lost the war as they would maybe see it what they're holding out hope for like you said Aaron, is something short of unconditional surrender of course and really the best way to achieve that is to bleed the americans to absolutely bog them down and bleed them and you know that option was available to the japanese they were willing to stand and fight so you know they'd lost the the battle of Leyte gulf you know in october 1944 which meant that the u.s naval forces were going to be preeminent in the philippines of course they had been degraded in the air, but they had unleashed a new weapon, which is going to have significant potency, the kamikaze. I mean, that's in play by the fall of 44. And you see kamikazes attack MacArthur's invasion fleet in, in January 1945. They kill, I think it's 503 sailors. And they, they also kill Lieutenant General Herbert Lumsden, who was the British liaison officer attached to MacArthur's headquarters. Didn't sink any ships, didn't stop the invasion, but it gave you a little you know, preview of what was going to happen in Okinawa. So for General Yamashita, who is the overall Japanese commander in the Philippines, he has a kind of inland defense concept, which had become more popular now, infamously, of course, since Peleliu. Uh, the Japanese not necessarily investing everything to stop the Americans at the waterline, but using good defensible inland terrain to just basically bleed them. And we'll see that, of course, at Okinawa quite famously too. So that's his concept. What astounds me about him, That I mean, I still I I wish I could have talked to him about this because it's just so hard for me to believe he will later say. And it's, of course, in the context of a war crime trial in which he's accused of being responsible for the atrocities. I mentioned moments earlier when he did not order them, of course, he will claim that he did not intend to defend Manila, that he wanted to be a kind of open city to leave, that he he was going to fight elsewhere. And I find that astounding on a number of levels because if you want to bleed the americans i don't know of any better way than to get them involved in urban combat i mean you talk about a manpower suck and how deadly that is and destructive and and it tends to be as we're seeing you know right now with with the idf in in gaza it tends to be time intensive and go on and on it's really hard to control i don't know of any better way he could have done that and he and he also didn't seem to grasp The incredible value of Manila to the Americans, certainly on a political level and, you know, liberating the Philippines and all that. But on a logistical level, you know, as we discuss, MacArthur's campaign here is enormous. This is a huge army, huge military force you've got. So it has to be sustained. Manila is the number one way you're going to do that. It's incredible harbor. You simply had to have. So it's a very valuable objective. uh, And yet the general will claim that he didn't intend to defend it. Very odd thing, in, in my view. But but certainly, you know, he, so why does it happen? Because he's in the northern part of Luzon, really quite cut off from portions of his army. And there's also an army-navy thing going on there And that most of the, the Japanese who are stuck in Manila and sometimes out of communication with Yamashita in the north are naval guys. And And so, you know, they basically wreck the harbor and they decide they're going to hunker down and fight to the end,
0: and that's precisely what they do. So let's. There's obviously. I mean, we could we could do a whole series of episodes on each one of these campaigns, but in the spirit of of doing a little summary justice to each major part of your book, let's shift to China, where I get another sort of striking observation that you make. Uh, you're sort of referring to late '44, and you talk about the the failure of American grand strategy in China as of 1944, which is you know I, I think for for somebody who's not professionally following the period. A little earlier than you might have expected to be able to pronounce that American grand strategy in, in China had failed. Uh, what were the failures that were baked in already by, by 1944? How are things going? I mean, as I see it,
1: the, the failure you can mark is when when Lieutenant General Joseph Stilwell is basically relieved when Chiang Kai shek says, I can't work with this guy anymore. You got to get him home. Uh, and the Americans do so. And why do I think that? I mean, certainly there's a lot Stilwell could have done better. I mean, and I, I explore that in the series, but it pointed out. To some serious issues in in chinese and american relations and and as partners still frustrations were america's frustrations and they were that the regime was corrupt that it was repressive it was backward it was not going to fight the way we wanted it to if we were giving them lend-lease supplies and all that kind of stuff that we expected then we've got a a pretty good structure of advisors with the chinese army we're trying to kind of train them up in the, in the way that we want them to, to operate, but we don't really understand and grasp the, the threat that is brewing in the North from the communists. We want any Chinese is going to fight, and we're willing to support the communists too at this stage, and, and, and the communists are only too happy to kind of lead us down that flowery path, which I, I don't think the Americans had a good enough grasp of that just yet. So when Wiedemeyer, Albert Wiedemeyer, who succeeds still well, comes in, in the fall of 44, he gets along better with Chiang Kai-shek. That's great. But the problem still exists of the civil war brewing in China that we're worried about. And, and China being effective enough to stay in the war and bog down the Japanese, but not effective enough to, to achieve the object of a stable, continent-leading, you know, modern China that we want as a partner. And Wiedemeyer comes up with the same sort of war-ending concept that Stilwell had. Basically, let's train up a really good Chinese army of 60, 80 divisions that we can rely on. They're going to launch an offensive to regain control of the harbors. Because the concern we have, and this is so bizarre to think of now, but concern we have is what we could conquer the Japanese home islands themselves, and yet the Japanese could somehow still resist with their army in China, in Manchuria, and so on and so forth. So to preclude that, we're hoping to do you know, just this this kind of offensive in addition to securing China as the kind of partner we want. So I think when Stillwell is fired, it's an indicator that a lot of that has really, unfortunately, gone down the tubes. It's easy for me to say, but I'm an historian looking back, and I'm like, okay, that's maybe what I can pinpoint.
0: At the time, they certainly wouldn't have viewed it that way, of course. And sorry, just to just to clarify what where where do the communists fit in to that concept for for post-war post-defeat of Japan, China is is American policy to make peace. How is that actually going to work in the views of the administration? And then how do people like how, how does how is Stillwell thinking about it? How does McCarthy think about all this? Presumably his attitude differs from from FDRs. Yeah, I mean,
1: Stillwell is happy to support any Chinese who's going to fight the Japanese and still is very kind of right wing in his politics. So he's not pro communist as he will later be accused by like during the, by many in the Joseph McCarthy era and all that's Quite grossly unfair. But the, the, the dynamic in play in China is you basically have a, a, a kind of three way civil war. And we tend to forget this. There's within the jo- Japanese occupied zones of China, there is an accommodationist government almost kind of similar to like the Vichy government in France or whatever, that says, okay, well, China's future is with Japan here, and we will make the best of that and have some sort of new Chinese nation. There's Shanghai Shack, of course, and the Nationalists. And then the, the Communists are like the smallest of the three, ironically enough, and they tend to be the strongest in the North. And they, they will later promote the idea that they were really fighting the Japanese hard and all this and that, that's absolute nonsense. They really weren't. They were accommodating with the Japanese as they could, and they were growing a political movement in the North and a military force, because they were looking ahead to the day when they would, uh, you know, cross swords with kai Shack and vice versa. And so Shang is constantly worried about that. And so one of the reasons why he's tolerating the despotism and corruption that, that is not because he's an idiot. He isn't. He's he's quite effective on many levels. But he realizes he needs as many allies as he can get for what are going to be his real enemies: the the, the Chinese, the, the Chinese communists, and the Americans. You know, it depends who we're talking about. But I think largely they don't quite grasp that. What sort of peace do they envision? They want Japan out of China and they want an accommodation, a kind of coalition government between the the nationalists and the communists. Well, we all know when you're sitting down with communists, it's a zero sum game. You know what? Either you're going to survive or they are. And that's generally the pattern of history in relation to communists. And I think the Americans kind of have to learn that the hard way. I, I really think Chiang Kai-shek understood that maybe a little
0: better than than his allies did, at least maybe during the war years. Well, and let me ask you this, because the Truman administration obviously will, 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 will basically defend itself against the claim that it lost China by pointing the finger at Chiang Kai-shek. I think Dean Acheson, as late as you know, his memoir, President of the Creation, basically makes this case. It was, you know, what what are you gonna do? Like Chiang Kai shek was such a loser, there was nothing to be done. It's sort of oversimplify it. But that seems to me to be like basically the assertion. What, what 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 truth was there to this defense? I mean, what was it true? I mean, what, what was Chiang Kai shek destined to lose? It seems like you don't you don't think that. can you can you make the make the case? I don't think he was destined to lose. And I, I don't think he was a
1: complete loser or awful or whatever. I mean, he he had warts. He had some serious issues. So I wouldn't shrink from that. But I, I think he was given an unfair shake, maybe by some in the Truman administration, like Atchison, who were trying to, to lay the whole blame on him. And maybe that's not really fair. There's a lot of mistakes Chiang Kai-shek made, of course, like any leader. But I do see the situation as possibly retrievable, but it was probably going to take a better understanding on the Americans of the true political dynamic in China, maybe an un, more unvarnished view of communism. And that would have been a hard thing to do in the context of World War II when we have a great alliance with another communist country, the Soviet Union. Right. So that would have been tough to do. But if we've got a better understanding, we prioritize and have more resources go into China and all that. Partly what Shang is angry about half the time is we're promising him one thing and then reneging, you know, classic example we promise him extensive amphibious operations in Burma, you know, you know, (laughs) in the Cairo conference. And then we basically pull the plug on that after the Tehran conference, when we've promised Stalin that we're going to invade in France. And we realize we can't do both. We don't have the resources. So from Shank's point of view, he's just constantly coming up against this sort of uncomfortable reality that he's the last option for us, you know, And, and, and I think that if you had maybe a different prioritization, who knows? I mean, who knows how things play out? But certainly, I mean, as I see it, you were likely to have more influence to the outcome you wanted if you had greater priority.
0: Yeah, it's 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 kind of unsettling to look back on it because I take your point, and I think it's a really important point that in retrospect, I mean, we can all we all know what happens in nineteen forty nine, the defeat of the nationalists by the CCP, and how it really is. I mean, along with. Hitler's rise to power, Russian revolution. I mean, it is it is one of the great tragedies of the 20th century and of human history. And of those tragedies I just named, it is the one that is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it Absolutely. is the problem we are still confronting. But that's easy for us to say, having watched everything unfold. And so, you know, if in 1944, it would have been f- difficult to find somebody with the perspicacity to to see that looking forward. You know, it makes me wonder what we are sitting here in 2024 complacently Assuming that is that is a few years from now going to seem insane if not criminal in retrospect, it's very humbling. beyond your, beyond your warrant perhaps. But feel feel free to respond if you have. Well,
1: no, I, I think it's a great point, Aaron, because it's very humbling, and I, I think I think when you think of it that way, it it really helps you take a step back and have respect for the historical actors and say, you know what, they didn't see how it was going to play out, just like we don't now. They were making tough decisions in the moment. They were fighting an existential war. They were doing the best they could on some levels, and and I think that's why it's good to step back and feel that way with Shanghai Shack, too. You know, now after Atchison wrote his book, you know, Shang's diary has become available, and we know a lot more about his inner workings and and you know who he was as a leader and a person and all that. And he's come to have a more favorable light, I think, among many historians by now, and even in China too, you know, where there's a recognition the, of the, the role the nationalists played in defeating the Japanese and creating. A modern, powerful China on many levels, because remember, too, from a Chinese point of view, they're dealing with what they call century of humiliation, which they've been dominated by these imperial powers, mostly Western, but also Japanese eventually, too. And that's not a good thing for China either. So, yeah, I do think that it, that it gives you a sense of humility and maybe that's a really good thing, I hope.
0: Well, let's let's shift gears again to to Okinawa, and the, and then what I'm really interested in, actually, and you spent a, uh, some time on, is, is is Operation Downfall and the and the the, the sort of the, the horrible war that never happened in Japan. But what 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 do you think is? I mean, I don't know why I think this, and maybe this is just idiosyncratic and, and more of a an observation about me. But I, I feel like Okinawa in our popular culture, maybe it's the Marines, maybe it's maybe it's the the PR machine of the Marines strikes again. Okinawa is somehow better remembered than what we've already talked about, either the Philippines or, or China, though China, of course, was a huge issue at the time. Uh, and I, I you know I, I don't know if that's true, I guess, but it, it seems true to me. But what okay, what, what, what was it important to you to draw out about the campaign in Okinawa? And then I want to get on to how it was the springboard for what was to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, what was important to me to draw out is that it's a, like pretty much most of them, it's a joint army and marine operation. It's running very well at the, at the command level in terms of inter-service cooperation and all that it's also i wanted to point out the the toll it took on the okinawans which i think sometimes gets lost in the maw and also the the interesting dynamic among the 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 japanese command structure where general ushijima has two key staff officers who see the the battle very differently one of whom wants the old aggressive, stop them at the waterline let's constantly attack and bonsai people and another who is like you know what this is the, the the strategic impact we're going to have is to bleed these guys, and we need to do that, you know, on the Shuri line and the, in the in the caves and the and the the dugouts, and the, you know, just the, we need to just turn it into a bloodbath. And I think certainly he's absolutely right. I think this is better remembered because it fits in with what our popular memory of the Pacific War tends to be as just that the Pacific War without all the messiness of what's happening in Asia with Chiang Kai Shek, without all that imperial residue that the philippines brings into play and other places too especially with our allies you know the dutch in indonesia the british wherever you know so on and so forth the french in southeast asia um you know that's easier to just have this little stepping stone war guadalcanal tarawa you know saipan iwo jima okinawa and the bomb and then you're done uh, actually the war is much bigger much more ambitious and much messier than that and that's the army's war, as i've as I point out, I think it's, it's interesting and important to look at, not just from a service perspective of saying, hey, you know, the army did this and it deserves credit or something. It's, it's not just that it's it's the army's war sheds light on what the war really was. Not a few expeditionary invasions here and there of bitter fighting. No, it's way more than that. And so you can get, I think, a fairer understanding. The Battle of Okinawa, of course, is one of the largest in human history and you know the ultimate climax and great tragedy of the war too, and i think i think that's another reason why it stands out to us is it's you know you're fighting on a large island a major island that's really quite heavily populated and fortunately you don't have to invade japan so it becomes the capstone to the to the end of this kind of nightmare that world war ii had become
0: talk a bit about what would have happened had we not dropped the bomb and obviously there's many different ways into that question i'm interested just in the operational planning itself and how we saw the fall of japan coming about and then two i am interested in your take on these these sort of always controversial sort of issues of, of revisionist history like the japanese were gonna we gonna surrender anyway we didn't need to drop the bomb you just w- w- walk us through what we were planning to do had there been no atomic bomb and then of course what actually happened in, in your take on whether or not the, the bomb was necessary yeah so there was gonna be a two-stage invasion of japan and the
1: first would have been known as Operation Olympic, in which uh, General Kruger's 6th Army would invade at Kyushu and use Kyushu as a major base, especially for air bases, to, drop, to, to, to invade Honshu, obviously where Tokyo is and a lot of the population, in what was called Operation Cornet. So Olympic was going to take place in November 1945. Cornet would be in March 1946. You're invading near the, the plains near Tokyo. And 8th Army under Eichelberger was to have the lead role there, but also 10th Army would, would be in play. And that probably would have been under Stilwell, who had come back into play as head of Army ground forces, who had taken over for General McNair when he had been killed in in the short bombing in Normandy by friendly bombers, right. sadly. Stilwell was going to get 10th Army, and then 1st Army was redeploying from Europe to to come in there in support. And actually, it probably would have had a more lead role than 10th Army, but whatever. This would have been the largest amphibious invasions in human history. They would have been one of the largest
0: campaigns
1: ever. I mean, it would have been an absolute total bloodbath. You know, 6th Army alone was probably going to be 10 to 15 divisions strong, and it still would have been outnumbered at Kyushu. To give you a sense of of how the Japanese have been building up their defenses, much less the kamikazes, everybody saw this as a nightmare. So what's interesting to me is by the summer of 45, all three services as we'll call them kind of saw the end game through their own lens so the army air forces are like okay well we firebomb these guys we can bring them to their knees through this bombing campaign and then of course the atomic bomb becomes the next weapon to help them do that the navy is thinking you know we can blockade the heck out of these guys we can prevent that whole china nightmare that we're worried about and we can bring them to their knees this way because they're close to starvation and we can mine their waters and of course the the army and the marine Corps. Are thinking in terms of a ground invasion, you know, and and so Truman is having to kind of navigate all of this and figure out, well, what really will happen if we have to do this? And then the bomb comes into play too. Now, the idea that Japan would have surrendered, I, I always find that so specious because they had an opportunity to do so with the Potsdam Declaration. They could have accepted that, and that would have been tantamount to a surrender if they were really intending. So when, when when you hear Japan was intending to surrender, uh, that's a half-truth. There were some Japanese who were at that point, some Japanese in the higher reaches of government or the military or whatever. There were others who didn't, okay? So it's a matter of who has influence at any given time. What we do know is that the Japanese government and its actions did not accept the Potsdam Declaration as of the end of July, and thus you end up in this next phase of the war in which you have a dual-body blow, atomic bombings, and the Soviet Union entering the war, which are ultimately decisive in tipping that balance to where the majority in in power in Japan decides we need to go to the allies and and surrender and cut some kind of deal with them. Well, That's what happens.
0: happens. The other, I mean, a, a take on the revisionist argument I, I have come across, and to, I mean, to be clear for me, you don't have to accept this exact premise, but to me, this all seems downstream of of a view that nuclear weapons were employed and that the consequences were not only, that, that the consequences were tragic in certain obvious straightforward ways and in other ways beneficial, but that is a kind of scandal that has to be explained away, that, that, that can't it simply can't be accepted as true. And then in another version of the revisionist take I've heard, and this is sort of down to the day-to-day of the actual end of the war, is that the Soviet invasion was the actual mechanism that, that compels surrender. And certainly the second, maybe the first bomb—the bomb on Nagasaki—is certainly vestigial, and and if anything, and then you sort of you, you you hear claims actually more intended to signal something to the Soviets than it was, you know, intended as a mechanism for the defeat of Japan. I'm curious to know your 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 response to that whole set of issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's the first time you're hearing this. To me, to me, it's a classic sort of retro argument. It's I, I've never found
1: any evidence that says, okay, we are dropping that bomb on August ninth, 1940, 1945, in order to demonstrate something to the Soviet Union, even as we're they're coming into the war to help us as our allies against Japan now. That is, to me, a classic sort of reductionist Cold War thinking. Certainly, I mean, I get the point that the bomb can impress the Soviets in terms of what it means for American geopolitical power. Yes but they're deep into spying on the Manhattan project and they know a lot of what's going on. So I don't know that we really have to demonstrate that to them from their point of view, at least. But what, what I can say just as a, as a world war two historian is their primary preoccupation as of August, 1945 is ending the war with Japan and doing that the best they can and saving allied casualties the best they possibly can. And, the, the decision makers think this is the way to do it. I think history kind of bears them out. And I, I think the point, I think one, one point that is good that we, we absorb is that that Soviet invasion, Soviet entry into the war on August 9th was also very significant in this whole thing. I see it as a dual body blow. The atomic bombings and Soviet entry is this sort of wake up call for the Japanese leadership, the holdouts who had said, no, no, we can continue fighting the war. We can do X, Y and Z. That they now were going to sort of start to lose that argument, and the emperor himself, who at times is is really quite morally vacuous on a lot of levels and, and quite indecisive, he has come forward and said, "Hey, you know, we need to we need to do something to end this war." It's that dual body blow. So the rest of it, the Cold War stuff. I mean, I think it's easy to say in the nineteen sixties, this is what was really the agenda. Uh, I think when you actually look at the record from the, from the era. It really doesn't quite show up that way, especially from an operational perspective.
0: Well, I, I wanna conclude where we began again by commending you. I mean, it's this is a really remarkable achievement. And I think you in the books themselves, but but even just chatting today, you make the case very effectively that what, what seems to be, you know, history that is increasingly distant from us is startlingly relevant. And I, I as much as it grates on me as a Marine to make this concession, I actually think your point about how looking at the army's war shows something about the true nature of the war that's an interesting point and i think an intriguing one and you know when it comes to maybe would make us focus more on china and and the and the, and the philippines one that, that seems quite plausible and how how you know what what i would what i would suggest to people who are, who are interested in picking up your books and they should be is you know the forces that are unleashed in the in the far far from being a vestigial part of the war that doesn't matter in china you know of course the, the war begins in some respects depending on how you want to measure it with the japanese action in china and it hasn't ended in they some haven't. important ways it's never ended the crisis we are facing today is absolutely directly i don't even want to say downstream it's 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 a continuation of the war that began in the 30s it absolutely um, is or even the 20s if you want to take it back to the communist revolution in china or the uh, beginning of the chinese communist party in china so two, double-barreled last question for you one any any big takeaways applicable today that we haven't addressed that you want to make sure you say before we're done. So that's question one. Then question two is, of course, after they're done with your books, what have you read as you've done all this research and all this preparation that might be of interest to listeners to the show? And I would ask you, show up, I mean, you're a professional and, and you have a, a sort of obligation to research all sorts of different nooks and crannies, but show a bias towards, you know, books that are themselves particularly impressive pieces of literature. That, that you get real bang for your buck by by focusing on.
1: Yeah. In terms of the books, I, I think Ian Toll's trilogy about the war in the Pacific is, is just brilliant from a naval perspective, especially. I think that's that's Ian's wheelhouse, that he's one of the finest naval historians in play now. And I think you'll really get a sense of what the U.S. Navy becomes. And as Ian sees it, just what what a maritime war this is on, on many levels. Now, you know, I tend to chime in in my series and say, okay, yes, but the war had to be fought and won on the ground ultimately. And that meant X, Y, and Z. And, and I think that that tends to, to be the, the equation, but I also would point anyone toward Rich Frank's opera, his, his book on operation downfall, which is the larger term about invading Japan, you know, in which Olympic and Cornette would have been part of the larger operation downfall. It's, it's brilliantly done. And, and you're really, if you're wondering about the side of the end game of the war and its legacies, I don't think you can go to any other better, better place. And he's in the middle now of a trilogy that really does focus to a great extent on the, the Sino-Japanese War, which, which I think is long overdue. Anyway, so the first book is called Tower of Skulls, and then you know the, 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 the subsequent books are, are in the offing now. I think if you want a one-volume look at it, Ron Spector's Eagle Against the Sun, is just
0: just amazing and, and a, kind of a good place to start on some levels. Any, any sorry to interject, any, any memoirs or, you know, you have all these colorful figures who just get less attention, I think, than the Corps or Army commanders in Europe get. Any, any, any primary source documents or anything like that that really stand out to you? Yeah, I, I think General Eichelberger's memoir. I highly recommend it.
1: It's, I think, it's called Our Jungle Road to Tokyo, and it's it's just so interesting and engaging. It it reminds me of Eisenhower's Crusade in Europe. And and they're very alike in that they really neither of them really needed ghostwriters. So I think when you look at Eichelberger's memoir, you kind of see the whole war from certainly from the army's perspective coming from Australia and New Guinea forward through the Philippines, but also the occupation of Japan too. So it takes you to the the aftermath of the war. I find that one in some ways the most interesting. There's a at the soldiers level, I think a fascinating book which isn't very well known by a guy named Francis Bernie Catanzaro, who was with the 41st Division, and it's it's basically called that with the 41st Division in the Pacific, and it's all about what it was like to be a rifleman fighting in the South Pacific in the Philippines, and and in a way that's the real Pacific War on some levels. It's not as much three days of tarawa as it is months and months and months in the new guinea jungles the philippines jungles and all that 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 maybe is a little more typical and also i think for for many marines too you know like if you served at cape gloucester or something you know that it's a kind of a longer haul sometimes and i think you get a sense of that in that
0: book yeah i mean of course
1: there's, there's tons of others those are the ones that really come to
0: mind first i guess and final, final thoughts, big takeaways that we need to keep in mind today about fighting in the Pacific. Yeah, I mean, I think if it
1: if it played out this way 80 years ago, then I, I think there's some lessons there and it's likely to be much the same. And of course, you know, there's been some game changing <laughs> weapons and technology since then, but war is war on some levels. And I, and I think maybe the mistake we make nowadays is to see the Pacific Asia as a kind of maritime theater exclusively and a tendency to say, well, okay, we'll We'll invest our ground resources with NATO in Europe, and then we'll let the Navy handle what happened in the Pacific. I think that'd be a major mistake. I think you're going to need, unfortunately, major ground forces to do most of the heavy lifting, and they're going to have to be Marine and Army, just as they were in in World War II. And I think that the two ground-oriented services are going to have to to, do a good partnership, just as they mostly did. In the war against Japan, when they didn't, it was because of command problems. Largely, the the high, the level of respect for the average marine and the average soldier in combat for each other was off the charts, and I, I don't think that that has changed. Hopefully, unfortunately, but I think that's really where the war would be won or lost. From from my very limited perspective, the the other legacy I want to talk about that, that is still with us today is, and this isn't just the Pacific, but Pacific is a big part of it. The idea that once the war is over, we will find the remains of our fallen. We will repatriate them, bring them home if that's what the next of kin want. So where where is that idea to get started? Really, World War II. And, of course, now we expect it. And so that expectation now grows out of what happened in World War II and what was a massive repatriation program. So that's where I end the series is with that program because I thought it was, in some ways, at a human level, the most appropriate legacy.
0: John McManus, author of To the End of the Earth, The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1940. That's the third volume in a trilogy that begins with Fire and Fortitude, followed by Island Infernos. As always, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.